Well, it's a delight to be back among you Michiganders once again. And I always look forward to this time of the year to see your friendly faces, to have an opportunity to preach to you. This morning I was out on the porch under that swing on the porch there. I was studying my notes and Angelina come out to spend a little time with me. She says, what you doing? I said, I'm studying. And i got to preach tonight. She says, study? And I says, yeah. There was kind of a moment of silence. And she said, so you won't mess up? <laughs> yeah. So I won't mess up. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, in verses 9 and 14 of Hebrews chapter 9, and in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 10, we have the word conscience. Conscience. The word is a common word in the English language, and it is found many times in the New Testament. And in the original language, it generally means distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, condemning one and commending the other. Now, if you were a Freudian, your definition of conscience would be the part of the superego That's the division of the psyche that is formed through the internalization of moral standards of parents and society that censors and restrains the ego. You got that? There will be a test later. Now, the superego is mostly unconscious, said Freud. It is composed of the ego ideal. That's what makes folks say, I'm really a good person. It is also composed of the conscience. Now, in psychoanalytical lingo, it is that which judges the ethical nature of one's actions and one's thoughts and then transmits such determinations to the ego for consideration. Conscience. No matter how it is spoken of or how it is used, has to do with guilt. No matter what, no matter how it's phrased, in what language, or what 
psychological babble. It is simply this. Conscience, your conscience, my conscience, has to do with guilt. Whether positively or negatively, it has to do with guilt. If one speaks of not being able to do something with a clear conscience, he is saying that he could not do it and be guiltless. If he says that he has a clear conscience, he is saying that he has no guilt or is not guilty in the thing that he does. Conscience has to do with guilt. Conscience has to do with knowledge whether consciously or subconsciously, conscience has to do with the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. Now that fact automatically, automatically reveals the origin of our conscience. When Adam, in the Garden of Eden, consumed the forbidden fruit, he gained the knowledge of good and evil. He gained, for worse, (laughs) a conscience. A conscience. Now, up until that devastating deed took place, there was nothing in his knowledge but good. Nothing. Everything in creation was good, save his loneliness or aloneness, of which there is no indication that he was aware, though God was aware of it. His knowledge was all good, even very good, even very good. Now, when he disobeyed God, evil entered into the world by him, and man has since been plagued with a conscience. Now, conscience, being a thing that came as a result of the fall, is not a good thing. (laughs) It came as a result of the fall. It is therefore an evil thing. Because when he fell, he learned of good and evil. Before that, he only knew good. So, conscience is evil. The singular product of conscience is always and only guilt. Always. And this is also clearly revealed in the actions of Adam once conscience became his guide. You who remember the 50s remember a little dark-haired, dark-eyed singer named Teresa Brewer. You remember her, Don? She sang a little ditty back then called, Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide. You better not. You better not. When Adam gained a conscience, he immediately tried to assuage his guilt by first covering it with fig leaves. And when that didn't work out too well, when God showed up on the scene, He hid from the sting of His conscience, 
and finally ended up blaming someone other than himself for his problem. For after he was caught finally, he said, that woman you gave me, she made me do it. Kind of like Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. But actually, that's what Eve said. She said, that serpent you made, (laughs) he made me do it. You see, conscience, no matter how beneficial, and I use that word very loosely, conscience, conscience, no matter how beneficial, it might be in making moral and ethical judgments concerning behavior, can never bring a person one iota closer to God. By exercising it, or obeying it. The conscience is either an accuser or an excuser, and this is always the case. In Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, speaking of the Gentiles and the Gentile mind, and that's us, Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their heart, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean, while accusing or else excusing one another. And you'll notice there's a real connection there with the concept of the conscience and the principle of law. They're a law unto themselves. That's important to remember. Now, accusing or excusing is the particular arena in which free will works religion operates and can never produce perfection before God as pertaining to conscience operating within the nature that man has inherited from Adam. But what religion can do, and often does do, is blind the mind to the effects of the conscience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it speaks of forbidding in marriage and forbidding to eat meats, and that effectually sears the conscience or cauterizes the conscience. In Titus 1, verses 9 through 16, it speaks of those who finally, who profess to know God but do not, who do not love the truth, their conscience is sealed or seared in good works, in the good works that they do. Now, though religion may cauterize the conscience, it can never perfect it. Conscience operates in the realm of the broken law. It operates in the realm of the broken law, in the realm of the transgression, and never in the realm of spiritual life. Did you hear what I just said? Conscience never operates in the realm of spiritual life. Never. At the time of Adam's transgression, the existing law library was minimalist at best. 
There was just one law. Just one law. And that law, as all laws, had a particular design. It was designed to define sin, to assign blame, and to designate punishment. That's what the law does. You find another use of it, let me know. Any law, every law, is for that. That speed limit. I don't know if there is one out there. Sometimes I wonder when I'm up here driving. But if there is a speed limit out there, it's not for those who drive safely and within the speed. What's it for? If you go above the speed, then your sin is defined, blame is assigned, and justice comes forth, and punishment is executed. That's the only reason that law, or any law, exists. That's the only reason. The Lord said in Romans chapter 5 that where there was no law, there was no imputation of sin. Why? Because where there is no law, sin is not defined, blame is not assigned, sentence is not assigned, and punishment is not executed where there is no law. That the law preceded the crime that Adam did does not suggest that there was a possibility that the crime might not be committed, but rather that the crime and the purpose of God had already been committed. Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Why? Because sin existed in the purpose of God before there was ever a man to commit it. Or elsewise, you've got really one strange thing happened back there in eternity. Something slipped up on God. Adam was a mutable creature. Now, Adam was man at his best, wasn't he? That was his primary estate as the best man. So if he mutates, what direction is he going? <laughs> if he's as high as he can be on the realm of humanity, and he changes, what's it going to be? That's what it's going to be. Mutation is always downward. Now, Adam tried to salve his guilt, knowing that he had broken the law of God, because God had said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die, or in dying ye shall die. And once the deed was done, Adam proved that any effort of religion, and by the way, all efforts of religion... Apart from grace. <laughs> no matter by what name it may go. All efforts of religion are designed to make a person feel better about himself in the flesh. Always. And all that, this text said was dead works. Dead 
works. Now, he did not know, Adam, I believe, that he was spiritually dead. He surely felt the pains of natural death because he began to immediately stress and be anxious over his, this new thing in his bosom that suddenly made him uncomfortable at the thought of being around his Creator. And that thing in his bosom was the fear of judgment, which is the true fear of death. I don't believe people really are afraid to die. I've watched too many people die. Part of the job. Preacher always gets called to the bedside of the dying. How many hands are you held on? <laughs> How about you, Bruce? How many hands are you held? Of people that slip from this world to the next. People aren't afraid of dying. People are afraid of what comes after death. What our brother read this evening from John chapter 4, they're afraid of judgment. That's why they use language like, you know, I wish I'd have been a better daddy. That's not a fear of death, that's a fear of judgment. <laughs> I wish I'd have been a better mama. Why do they say things like that? Afraid of judgment. You know and I know and every living creature on the face of the earth, even an Adam in the Garden of Eden and all his sons in this world know that death don't end anything. It's the beginning of eternity. And it begins with judgment. There's an accounting, folks. There's an accounting. And people understand that. And Adam understood that. He knew that somehow... Whatever had happened made him accountable for his condition. And somehow he felt like, I've got to do something to undo this. And that's what conscience was telling him to do. His conscience accused him. His knowledge of good and evil made him endeavor to make a moral and ethical choice to undo his aching dilemma to quiet this screaming banshee in his bosom. And the end product was that with each religious effort, whether covering, hiding, or assigning blame to someone else, he showed for all who are spiritually alive that the law, no matter the shape or form, can only define sin, assign blame, determine punishment, and end in guilt. Whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped, and all the world become what? Guilty before God. So by the works of righteousness shall no man be justified in his sight. Shakespeare said, Conscience makes cowards of us all. Spurgeon defined conscience as the sense of past and present sin and the recollection of our deficient life. And no matter the effort to reform or change behavior, 
conscience, the knowledge of good and evil will always bring you to despair. Read Romans chapter 7. Here the, the Apostle Paul, the one who met Christ on the road to Damascus, who was cast down into the dust, blinded by the light of Christ. And through the preaching of the Gospel, the scales were removed, and he went on to preach the Gospel in almost everywhere in Asia and Asia Minor and was responsible for the establishment of almost every New Testament church that there was in the days of the Bible. And he said, you know, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. The will to do is there. But the power to perform I find not. So I see in my members a law, a principle of death that everything I touch makes me guilty. Everything I try makes me guilty. And I try to do good. I don't. And I'm guilty. And I get a wild hair and start going toward evil and I can't. And I'm guilty. I'm just guilty. Why? Why? That's the conscience. It's all it can do. That's why at the end of that wondrous tirade and explanation, true explanation of the conscience, Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from the body of this death, of this death, No matter what, conscience always brings you to despair. You see, where there is sin, and listen, where there is sin, there is law. Where there is law, there is sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, the sting of The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is what? The law. The strength of sin is the law. You see, where there is sin, there is guilt. And where there is guilt, there is the law. And where there is the law, there is the conscience. And the conscience always points to guilt. Now, any preacher who tries to bring his hearers to the law for righteousness is entirely discounting, disallowing, and disavowing the work of Jesus Christ. Any one of them. Any one of them. Any preacher who does so is making the death of Christ to be no effect to his hearers. He, operating in conscience, addresses the conscience of men and women, reminding them of their guilt. He then takes them to the law so that they might make moral and ethical choices 
to cover and hide or blame someone or something else for their guilt. Whether it's in a box or a bottle or a bordello or on the internet. Something's got to be blamed for this. But whatever it is, you see, can't be your fault. Can't be your fault. Unbeknownst to him, because he is operating from the conscience, it is he that is declaring to his hearers, in reality, there is no remedy for sin. A man who brings his hearers to the law is declaring there is no remedy for sin. Look at First Timothy. Paul speaks of some who desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. In verse 7 of chapter 1. What's that mean? These who desire to be teachers of the law don't understand what they're saying to start with, and they have no idea of the consequence of their words. They have no idea. Paul says, but we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. How is it used lawfully? If it's declared to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We do not use the law to make men guilty. We don't have to do that. Their conscience is already doing that. The law always makes them guilty. We don't need that. If they're going to be under the law, they're already guilty. I'll tell you when a man sees guilt, when he sees sin punished on Calvary's tree, that's when he understands guilt. And not until. Not until. Because all that other guilt, he believes that he can undo somehow. You get in a fix. Ever been in a fix? Our brother talked about the big fix. The, the tribulation of life as we know it. The troubles that attend every man that's born of woman in this world. What do we do when we get in a fix? Us fine Christian folk. <laughs> we say, oh, I don't know what the problem is, but I believe I need to pray more. Big leaves, folks. Need to read my Bible more. Why? So I get out of this fix. Listen, if you're in a fix, that's where you're supposed to be. It's your fix. It's yours. God sent it to you if you're His. Don't try to get out of it. Well, you know, what are you saying, really? If I was a better person, nothing bad would happen to me. If I, by my works, can accomplish to a certain level, I will live a, a, a trouble-free life. <laughs> that ain't going to work, folks. But you know what's doing that? Your conscience. Not your spirit. It's your conscience. Always that way. Always that way. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Now, he's saying those who say they trust Christ. Profess to trust Christ. 
yet seek to bring men under the law and teach them that by the law they they achieve righteousness before God. What they are actually doing is saying that what Jesus Christ did on Calvary didn't really change anybody, didn't really save anybody, didn't really justify anybody. Because no matter what He did, unless you go to the law, you're still whoremongers. They're taking what Christ has said is clean and saying it's not clean. How do they say it? They say we must go to the law. And that turns them right back. The law, you see, operates in the realm of sin. That's where it operates. And this is specifically what Paul is dealing with in our text. Boy, that was a long introduction, wasn't it? But it's a short message. Look back at our text, Hebrews chapter 9. In, verse, in chapters 9 and 10, Paul is dealing with this specific thing. When he talks about the service performed toward God by observing the rites and ceremonies of the law cannot make the comers thereto perfect as pertaining to conscience. These services cannot remove guilt and in fact excite and exacerbate guilt. If they were able to remove guilt, they would have ceased to be offered because the sheer magnitude of the act of removing guilt is such that once it is done, it can never be undone and therefore never ever needs Repeating. If guilt is removed, if guilt is removed, it never needs to be removed again. Never. So if we stay guilty in this life, something is bad wrong if we're a child of God. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews, just for a moment. This is what he's saying about all those Old Testament sacrifices. In verse 1 he says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very uh, image of the things, with those sacrifices which they offered by year by year, continue to make the comers therein too perfect. And what couldn't be done. For then, if they had made somebody perfect, then would they not have ceased to be offered? Of course. Why? Because the worshipers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sins. No more conscience of sin. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Now, Paul makes a remarkable statement in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9. Look at it. The Holy Ghost... This is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while at the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience. They could not do that. That's an astounding statement. 
That's an astounding statement. Taking the entire matter as a service of God by the law and setting the law uh, to represent the Old Covenant, Paul says that the Holy Ghost teaches precisely, specifically, by the numbers, that all those efforts in service to God under the law were designed to fail in removing guilt. They were designed to fail. In the performance of these things, the conscience was instead incited to guilt. Verse 3 of chapter 6 says, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Guilt comes back. Guilt comes back. All these rites, according to the Holy Ghost, God the Spirit, were carnal rites done in the flesh and could not please God. Look back at chapter 9 and verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal... What? <laughs> who, who ordained these things? Who appointed these things? God did. And what does He say of them? Carnal ordinances imposed on them till Christ came. Till the time of Reformation. Imposed on them. Now all these rites according to the Holy Ghost were carnal. Now that's hardly an adjective that men would apply to holiness. Or justness. Or righteousness. Yet God does. Men stand in pulpits and preach the law as a means of righteousness, and what they produce in men is carnal holiness. A holiness hatched in the conscience, a performance of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Holy Ghost simply does not teach that a man should go to the law for the righteousness, for righteousness, ever, in any form. Or for any reason. Because to do so is carnal. Not spiritual. Because it only results in work regenerated and generated from death. When we were in the motions of sin, Paul said, the law incited us, enticed us to bring forth works unto death. Works unto death. Operating in the realm of conscience is not spiritual. And all effort and endeavors that emanate from conscience produce dead works and then cannot ever be regarded as service to God. They can't. The impetus of conscience is the broken law. And that is what the Holy Ghost teaches. Now, is there anything? Is there such a thing as a good conscience? Is there? Can the accuser that we are born with, that plagues our mind all the days of our lives, can that accuser 
be silenced. It is clear that it cannot be silenced by the deeds of the law. We just read that in verses 8 and 9. In fact, such deeds only increase the decibel level. Religious service designed to keep the law and render service to God is dead. Is dead. How dead? Graveyard dead. Twice dead and plucked up by the roots dead. Necros dead. Stinking dead. Corrupting dead. Day. Guilt is employed by religion as the incentive for religious service and is designed to soothe or ease the conscience. The only problem with it is that it never, ever works. And you who have been plucked as a firebrand from legalistic free will works religion, know that by experience. We all tried to clean up our act. And it was a failure. And yours will be too. Well, preacher, I want to come to church, I, but I want to clean up my act first. Well, you must believe that salvation is by works then. That God only saves good people. What does the Holy Ghost teach that will silence the conscience? I'd really like to know, wouldn't you? This thing bugged me to death. I'll be honest with you. Mine just worries me all the time. That's something. I'd like to know what I shut it up. The Holy Spirit teaches that a perfect sacrifice, (laughs) a spiritual sacrifice, a sacrifice that has nothing whatsoever to do with your religious service, yet produces true and acceptable service to God, will quieten your conscience. The conscience is only silenced, listen very carefully, when No grounds exist upon which it may accuse. No grounds. This means that there can be no law to define. No sin to record. No guilt to condemn. A perfect sacrifice. Shuts up the conscience. Because the conscience cannot say you must do this like sow fig leaves together or hide from God or blame it on somebody else. Because you see, there's nothing to cover. (laughs) There's nothing to hide. There's no one to blame. If you're not guilty, if you're not guilty. That sacrifice is the sovereign, successful, sweet, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world.
Look at our text. Verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained, He got it, eternal payment for us. Sin is a debt. Isn't it? You're a child of God? It's paid. <laughs> paid. You say, well, I don't, have, don't I have to do something? Tell your conscience to shut up. The sacrifice has been made. It's been made. Look at verse 15. And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Inheritance. Look at verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Verse 26, For then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And you all are familiar with chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. I dare say probably if I got it started, y'all could quote it out loud. You know, that high priest, that blessed high priest, when he had finished the work of salvation and perfected forever them that are sanctified, so much so that God will not remember their sin anymore, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having purged our sins. And so there is no more need for sacrifice and no more need for offering. The sin offering has been made. And the conscience is purged and quietened and silenced and placed under a judicial gag order when every basis for condemnation is removed. Paul makes an allusion here to the red heifer in verse 15, or verse 13, whose ashes symbolically cleanse the defilement of the flesh. Now what defilement did those ashes symbolically clean? The sin of touching a dead thing. What did Christ do for us? He purged your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Touching a dead thing. This alludes to the dead works produced in serving God by conscience at the risk of channeling M.C. Hammer. Can't touch this! (laughs) Don't touch this! Don't touch it. I beseech you by the mercies of God, don't. Touch it. If the ashes of a heifer cleanse the defilement of the flesh, the blood of Christ purges the conscience from dead works. And what does that mean? It means you have no more conscience of sin. That's what it says. That's what it says in chapter 10 and verse 2. You have no more conscience of sin. It means that there are no there is no basis upon when the conscience can accuse you. Think of that. There is nothing in you or about you before God that the conscience can accuse you of. And so it has nothing to say. So it just shuts up. 
And instead the Spirit says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died at perfect sacrifice. Yea, rather is risen again and is even at the right hand of the Father living to make intercession for us. We serve the living God. Not by conscience, but by faith. If your conscience is bothering you, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're trying to serve God under the law. <laughs> and conscience likes that. Because it'll tell you, you know, you didn't do it right. And then it'll say, you better do something about that. And then when you've done something about that, it'll say, it ain't enough. And you better run and hide. It'll always say that. We don't serve the living God to cover, to hide, or to assuage our guilt. We serve the living God because we're not guilty. (laughs) Not guilty. Our works are not dead but lively because they are spiritual and acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. A lively priesthood offering spiritual gifts unto God acceptable by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, looking to Christ makes the conscience mute. When I feel guilty, it is because I've breathed life into my conscience. And the result will be that I will try to do something to cover my guilt or will try to hide from God and maybe even blame you for it. I'll end up in despair every time. When I look to Christ, would to God I could do it all the time. Unbelief prevents me. My unbelief. But when I look to Christ, when I see Him, knowing that He has obtained eternal redemption for me, knowing that He has purged my conscience from dead works to serve the living God, knowing that my sins are remitted, knowing that there is no ground upon which I can be accused or condemned, knowing that I've been perfected as pertaining to conscience, knowing that God will not remember my sins and iniquities, I then and only then can serve the living God. Any other motivation or rationale results in dead works? In dead works. And I see Him. And it's like a heavenly cordial handed down from heaven. And I drink it. I imbibe And I grow drunk. And for that period of time, when I'm in that 
worshipful, gospel stupor. I forget all my trouble. My conscience is quiet. Thank God for His unspeakable gift. God bless you.